Welcome to episode 17 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Security Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 7th, 8th and 9th of September 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Focusing on the major news, the government has committed millions of pounds to bolster the protection of the public against terrorism by announcing substantial funding for an all-new National Counterterrorism Operations Centre as part of its latest spending review. In practice, the Counterterrorism Operations Centre will bring together counterterrorism policing, members of the UK's intelligence community and other parts of the criminal justice system in one location. This fully integrated approach aims to keep the public safer from terrorism by enhancing the nation's ability to discover and prevent attacks and also improve response speeds. The development of the Counterterrorism Operations Centre were set in motion after the series of terrorist attacks back in 2017, which killed 36 people and realised injury and life-changing impacts for many more. The attacks and the subsequent Operational Improvement Review, which itself was independently assured by Lord Anderson, highlighted the need for further progression of the UK's counterterrorism response, such that it continues to adapt to an evolving threat. The requirement to further progress capability in this area has been emphasised by attacks here in the UK, recent attack episodes across Europe, the 27 successful disruptions of planned terrorist activities since those 2017 episodes, and also the recent rise in the nation's terrorism threat level too severe, orchestrated by the Joint Terrorism Analysis Centre. All of this is set within the context of an ever-broadening threat environment and what's now viewed as an increasingly challenging technical landscape. An integrated, partnership-driven approach within a purpose-built working environment, the Counterterrorism Operations Centre will bring the right people, skills and technology together to help strengthen protection measures for the UK. It will also assist in the installation of smarter working practices and cultures, while rationalising processes and structures, subsequently boosting innovation with new forms of collaboration. Speaking about the move during his spending review speech in Parliament, Chancellor Rishi Sunak said, Our police and intelligence agencies do an extraordinary job every day to protect us all from terrorist activity. Bringing these partners together to form a world-leading counter-terrorism operations centre will enable them to work more collaboratively on disrupting threats, allowing the government to deliver on its first and foremost duty, which is, of course, to keep members of the public safe. Home Secretary Priti Patel added, We owe a huge debt of gratitude to our police service, the intelligence agencies and members of the criminal justice system, all of whom work tirelessly every single day to keep us safe from acts of terrorism. Metropolitan Police Service Commissioner Cressida Dick observed, I'm delighted that the government has confirmed its commitment to funding the creation of a new counter-terrorism operations centre. Following the dreadful terrorist attacks of 2017, both myself and the Director General of MI5 committed our respective organisations to identify exactly where we could learn from those events and continually improve the way in which we work together in order to protect the public from the terrorist threat. In truth, the concept of bringing the police service closer together with its national security partners emanated directly from this learning. The Commissioner went on to state, since 2017, We've worked closely with Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London, as well as our intelligence agency and security sector partners and the government to turn the concept into reality. The investment from policing, the Mayor and the government will create a counter-terrorism operations centre that assists significantly in keeping London and the UK safe from harm. Continuing with the counter-terrorism theme, counter-terrorism policing has also warned that a rise in the number of boys and young men becoming interested in violent extremism without a clear ideology, on top of low levels of community reporting, highlights the need for friends and families to act early on any signs of radicalisation. According to new prevent statistics just published by the Home Office, the number of people being supported through the government's anti-radicalisation programme for concerns related to mixed, unstable or unclear ideology has risen markedly for the third consecutive year. Prevent referrals saw an overall 
overall increase of 10% in the year to March 2020, up to 6,287 from 5,737 in the previous financial year, with just 2% coming from friends and family seeking support for a loved one. Much of that 10% increase was seen in the mixed, unstable or unclear ideology category, which represented 51% of referrals in 2019-2020, up from just 11% in 2016-2017. After mixed, unstable or unclear, the most prevalent ideology exhibited by those referred was Islamist at 24%, followed closely by right-wing radicalisation at 22%. Majority of referrals were young men, with 72% of them under the age of 30, and 88% of the referrals male. Mixed, unstable or unclear ideology relates to instances where people exhibit a combination of elements from multiple ideologies, i.e. mixed, shift between different ideologies, i.e. unstable, or where the individual doesn't present a coherent ideology, yet may still pose a terrorism risk, i.e. unclear. Specialists at Counterterrorism Policing believe the rise in numbers could be the result of two main factors. First of all, an improvement in the way in which strategy partners spot, record and support these types of cases since updated guidance was first issued in 2018. Second, the increasing prevalence of hateful extremist content online, with this content causing young or vulnerable people to fixate on violence and other dangerous subject matters. Chief Superintendent Nick Adams, Counterterrorism Policing's National Prevent Coordinator, has stated, one of the reasons for the increase will be the fact that we are becoming better at spotting and recording this type of behaviour, which can manifest itself in a number of ways, such as a fascination with all types of extremist or violent content. Adams continued, that alone though doesn't account for such a dramatic increase. We suspect it also relates to the sheer volume of hateful extremist content online and its ability to reach into the lives of some of the most vulnerable in our society through the internet. According to Adams, there are many factors which can make people vulnerable to radicalisation. He stated, we believe social isolation, problems in people's lives and in some cases mental health issues, complex needs and behavioural disorders can also contribute. This is particularly the case in this section of prevent referrals. A clear area of concern is the fact that just 2% of referrals came from family and friends, despite the fact that they're usually the first to spot the worrying behaviour changes can indicate that a loved one is heading down a path towards radicalisation. Parents, friends and families can now receive specialist support to stop their loved ones being drawn into harmful activities or groups with the launch of Act Early, a new dedicated safeguarding website and advice line. This resource will provide advice, guidance and support for anyone who's concerned that someone they know may be at risk from being radicalised by terrorists or extremist content online. With COVID-19 making regular access to schools, social workers and mental health support more difficult, people are now spending more time isolated and online. There's a concern that people who need help are not receiving it. This makes it all the more important for friends and family to use the new Act Early resources in order to understand what might be happening to their loved ones and what support Prevent can provide. In essence, parents, friends and family need to help the police by acting early, talking to their children about what they view online and sharing their concerns or seeking support if they fear someone may know is in danger of being radicalised. Our first guests on this edition of the Security Matters podcast are Letitia Emiana and Dawn Holmes, the newly appointed Chair and Vice-Chair of ACES International's UK chapter. Letitia's career in the security world began in the role of Corporate Building Security Advisor at the Lloyds Banking Group in early 2001, before she became Senior Corporate Physical Security Professional for the group in February 2013. In October 2016, Letitia, who is a Certified Protection Professional, made the move to Amazon UK and took on the role of Senior Physical Security Manager covering the EMEA region. A brief spell with Tesla followed before the switch to Unilever in January of this year. 
At present, Letitia's role as Security Capability Manager at the company includes direct responsibility for the development and advancement of security technology and people capability globally for the business. A Fellow of the Security Institute and also a Certified Protection Professional, Dawn Holmes served as Security Design Manager for Boots UK from 1998 until 2002, at which point she moved to the Britannia Building Society to become Head of Security. A seven-year spell as Assistant Head of Security at Experian followed before Dawn moved to Bank of America Merrill Lynch and the role of Vice President for Protective Services. A two-year spell with Bloomberg came next. Dawn is now Group Head of Security for GVC Holdings, a position that she has occupied since January of last year. During the podcast, Letitia and Dawn focus on several key issues, among them the diversity agenda in the security business sector and also their hopes and aspirations for ASIS UK in the years ahead. Letitia, first of all, can I ask you what's of most importance to you as a security professional? What are the driving motivations in your role? So, Brian, I think what's really become important to me as uh, my career's gone on is really about maintaining balance, actually. Um, security is such a, a huge, um, wide, broad area that that can be all-encompassing every single day. So it, it, I find it really important to, especially during this past year where it's been quite unique, it's all about maintaining some level of routine. Um, it's all about, um, I go for a run every morning. It means I can come into work and I'm ready to hit the day running. And then in the evening, it's about shutting down as best as possible uh, and, and uh, limiting those other distractions in the evening. And Dawn, can I ask you the same question? Yeah, for me, um, it's about educational from a personal perspective, this has given me the confidence to take that step up and to get more involved and to make me feel like I could hold my own. But education can also play a greater part in the diversity conversation, I think, in balancing the pay gap. Um, there's brilliant work that Elizabeth Lewis has done um, that's seen the introduction of women in security scholarships. In addition, the introduction of young professional, the APPs, um, accreditation shows an effort to start balancing the topic of diversity. I like to build up my team and our education is a big part of that, bringing them on the journey with me, building their confidence and competence as well, and really making that high performing team where we all just enjoy it so much. And I've also been lucky enough to be able to get involved with local schools, career events, selling the industry and working on the next generation of security leaders being engaged. And I must say it's becoming easier an industry to sell as people are now appreciating the scope of the profession and the emphasis on cyber security, for example, which has really helped to change perceptions. And focusing now on your ACES remit, Dawn, what developments would you like to see within the ACES UK chapter going forward? I think more member participation, you really do get out of these associations what you put in. And by getting more involved, you as an individual will benefit from networking opportunities. You know, you can change the industry by getting involved in certification boards, writing white papers. But ACES also benefits as well from being able to take on more. All the board and committee members are volunteers dedicating time on top of the day job. So the more volunteers, the more the chapter can achieve. And the amazing sponsors will also get to engage with more members. So it's really, you know, win-win. 
At the moment, I'm going through the Chartered Security Professional Accreditation process. And for anyone not too sure, the CSIP is a worshipful company of security professionals register established by royal consent and recognises excellence in, um, in top security professionals. Now, there are currently less than 15 women with this accreditation globally. So for me, I want to do a big push to change this. Not just to show our success, but also to ensure that there are more CSIPs women to be part of the assessment process to increase diversity, but also so women can have more of an input into the creation of the leaders and establishing an alternative view as to what is professional within the industry. And Letitia, what's on the wish list for your new role as chapter chair at ACS UK? <laughs> Uh, a bit like Dawn, um, one of the things I certainly would like to see is that increased engagement. I think it is a members um, association and I really would encourage more participation. And as Dawn said, the support as it's a volunteer organisation is critical. And because I'm such a passionate fan of diversity and not just you know women and security, I'm talking the broad diversity picture, I really thrive when I hear and see new thoughts, new opinions. And, and I do think we need to get more of that in the profession. And, and for me, a lot of that comes from the development of grassroots. And, you know, I am a, a grassroots football coach, so I can see the real benefits of, of investing in our youth about explaining how wide a remit security is explaining and doing a similar job that was pushed out around five years ago in cyber, which is really starting to see the fruits now of seeing more women into cyber security. I'd love to see more of that in the corporate and the physical security domains. And one of the things that I think we could do more of is support companies in internships uh, or scholarships or, or increasing that ability for the young professionals to get opportunities in larger organisations. And by doing that through ACES, we can give them that platform, we can give them that support, we can give them that encouragement by utilising our network. And that doesn't just mean within the UK, we're such a global organisation now generally, that we should be able to be leveraging our other chapters and working with those other chapters for the greater good of the membership. So I think, in short, for me, it's the engagement, it's the youth, it's the diversity of thought in its broadest sense. It's also making sure that we can improve that awareness. Letitia, do you think the approach towards the diversity agenda has improved across the sector and within ACES itself as an organisation? I can certainly say from when I first joined ACES in 2007, I joined purely because of the welcome that I had. I had done a bit of research, I'd gone to different events and different other uh, organisations, but I hadn't felt the warmth and the welcome like I had when I walked into the ACES. Now, that says a lot about what was going on in 2007, and I can certainly say for sure diversity has improved. The numbers are increasing. It's so wonderful now to go to conferences and be able to speak to other aspiring women and other peers in, in the industry. I think what we do need to concentrate on, though, is continuing in this right direction 
continuing the whole topic of diversity. And it, as I say, I'm, I'm a passionate supporter of what ASIS has done with women in security, the young professionals. But I do want to see that broader diversity picture coming together. And I think it's fantastic that ASIS has now got a brand new chair with uh, Candy leading that on the broader diversity front. So I'm really looking forward to what this board can achieve next year. And Dawn, your thoughts on the diversity agenda? Thinking back 20 years ago and my experience attending ASIS events, I'd say it's changed considerably. When I was on the board and the Women in Security lead a few years ago with ACES, it was great to see the sponsors specifically wanting to fund and get behind the young, young professionals and women in security initiatives, which allowed us to hold more events and to have these groups be able to set up their own individual networks. I attended several young professional events run by James Morris, and it was great to see the mix of the people in the room, uh, but also that these numbers matched what we'd see at the ACES seminars, showing the wealth of talent and the number of people ready to become the security professionals of tomorrow. I think the fact that ACES members have elected us both chair and vice chair shows a change and a desire for a fresh, innovative approach from ACES. Um, and the members believe that um, that we are, you know, we can do it and are happy to um, to make that change. I believe that we're the only ACES chapter globally that have women in both of these key positions. So, you know, it, it's really um, it's really good to see that the UK chapter is so forward thinking, willing to embrace change, which is a necessary part of making the change. And the diversity isn't just about tokenism, but it becomes the norm. Returning to the news, an employability programme is being launched by the EY Foundation and the Security Institute with widespread support from across the sector, including from the Security Industry Authority, to help break down barriers to employment for less advantaged young people wanting to begin a career within the security business sector. In practice, the programme will continue the EY Foundation's ongoing work as a social mobility charity and, in tandem, expands on the Security Institute's own next-gen initiative, which has already received a good deal of praise. The Secure Futures programme will support 27 youngsters aged between 16 and 18 from low-income backgrounds, such that they can access invaluable experience within the security industry, empowering them to consider pursuing careers working within the sector. The Secure Futures programme will be delivered virtually from February next year, thereby affording young people access to the wide range of careers on offer in the security world. This is the EY Foundation's first multi-employer collaboration and, thanks to the support of its sponsors from across the sector, the programme will involve a number of well-known organisations who will provide the 27 young people with paid work experience, opportunities to gain a variety of transferable skills and also all-important mentoring from a security professional through 2021 in order to help them identify their next steps. Security is very much a UK growth sector, with jobs available across physical and cyber security and in security firms themselves. Security roles are embedded in all kinds of private sector businesses, as well as in the public sector. Given that fact, the programme has been designed to introduce young people to the vast career opportunities within security. Paul Barnard, Director of Youth Engagement at the Security Institute, stated, We are pleased to be partnering with the EY Foundation in launching the Secure Futures programme, which itself will make the security sector more accessible and attractive for young people. Young people are an essential component of our workforce. They offer a fresh perspective and insights that can inform innovative solutions to long-standing issues. Barnard concluded, there are so many areas of security for which the younger generation can provide invaluable contributions, from the issues surrounding knife crime right through to emerging cybersecurity threats. We need to embrace young people and help nurture their skills. In doing so, we'll help to secure the sector's future prospects. 
the all-new National Cyber Force is going to help transform the UK's cyber capabilities when it comes to disrupting adversaries and keeping the nation safe, Boris Johnson has announced. In a speech on defence spending, the Prime Minister avowed that the new GCHQ and Ministry of Defence partnership will conduct cyber operations to disrupt hostile state activities, terrorists and criminals threatening the UK's national security, involving itself in countering terror plots and supporting military operations. Working alongside the National Cyber Security Centre, itself a part of GCHQ and which protects the digital homeland, the National Cyber Force will play a vital role in enhancing the UK's world-leading and responsible cyber power. The National Cyber Force draws together personnel from Intelligence, Cyber and Security Agency GCHQ, the Ministry of Defence, MI6 and the Defence, Science and Technology Laboratory under one unified command for the very first time. Alongside the MOD's operational expertise, DSTL's scientific and technical capabilities and GCHQ's global intelligence, MI6 provides its expertise in recruiting and running agents alongside its unique ability to deliver clandestine operational technology. Used alongside diplomatic, economic, political and military capabilities, examples of cyber operations could include the following. Interfering with a mobile phone to prevent a terrorist from being able to communicate with their contacts, helping to prevent the internet from being used as a global platform for serious crimes including acts of fraud, and keeping UK military aircraft safe from targeting by hostile weapon systems. GCHQ's director Jeremy Fleming said, For over a century, GCHQ has worked to keep the UK safe. Cybersecurity has become an integral part of this mission as we strive to make the UK the safest place in which to live and do business online. We are a world-leading cyber power, there's no doubt about that. The National Cyber Force builds out from that position of defensive strength. It brings together intelligence and defence capabilities to transform the UK's own ability to contest adversaries in cyberspace and protect the country, its people and our way of life. Fleming went on to state, Working in close partnership with law enforcement and international partners, the National Cyber Force operates in a legal, ethical and proportionate way in order to help defend the nation and counter the full range of national security threats posed in the modern era. What distinguishes the National Cyber Force is the partnership between Strategic Command, GCHQ and MI6, blending strengths and cultures to create this operationally distinct force. It's an actual step forward after decades of cooperation and means that the nation is growing a potent capability to deter our adversaries, defend our forces on operations and protect our digital homeland. The UK is fully committed to using its cyber capabilities in a responsible way and in line with UK and international law. Past cyber operations have operated and future ones will continue to operate under existing laws, including those granted by the Intelligence Services Act and the Investigatory Powers Act. This ensures UK cyber operations are responsible, targeted and proportionate, unlike those of some of the nation's adversaries. Our second guest on episode 17 of the Security Matters podcast is Andy Gent, the CEO of Revector. It's a business that specialises in the field of telecoms intelligence for fraud prevention and security. Andy founded Revector in the wake of an extensive international career across telecommunications, software, mobile and internet businesses. Formerly CEO of Pactel, Pakistan's largest mobile operator, Andy also held senior roles with Mercury Communications, the former national telecoms company in the UK, and also ECET International, a Cisco-backed software application. House. During our interview, Andy focuses his attentions on IMSI capture technology and also how critical national infrastructure can be protected from attacks using mobile networks. Oh, Andy, first of all, could you explain how to protect critical national infrastructure from attacks using mobile networks? Brian, yeah, that's a good question. If you look at critical national infrastructure in the past, it's been Um, mainly physical security, different technologies, cameras, um, personnel looking at what is going on around the area. As miniaturization of technology has taken place, you can actually start to use mobile networks to look who's in the area and who's in the vicinity of the area which you're trying to protect. As 
different levels of terrorism attacks have increased, people are becoming more aware of new surveillance techniques to really locate who's in an area. One of the ways is to look at the mobile network and look and monitor the movements of people in that area. Why is it so important to put these protection regimes in place, do you feel? Basically, I think, not me personally, but just generally, security methods are becoming old where people are getting around them, whether it be physical or cameras or, um, or barriers. You need to put other extra facilities in place and putting mobile um, management tools in place, you can actually see what's going on in the vicinity around and maybe if something's in a location which is 20 miles from something, 10 miles away, so you can actually see that people are coming closer to the target area. And one of the things that people are using now are IMSI catchers. And could you outline precisely what an IMSI capture is and also give an overview of how this technology works? Yeah, an IMSI catcher basically is a way of spoofing a mobile network. So in a mobile network, you have a number of cells. So say if um, you're a network in the Middle East, um, Etisalat may have a number of mobile cells around an area or Vodafone may have a number of cells. An IMSI catcher will replicate one of those cells. So your mobile phone or your device looks for cells around an area. An IMSI catcher will do exactly the same. And if I am sat in a location in a certain country, I can see a mobile phone cell, say a Vodafone cell, and I can replicate it with an IMSI catcher. I can then um, look for devices in the specific area around me and actually lock onto those devices for either a short period of time or a longer period of time. The word IMSI is actually the International Mobile Subscriber Identity, which is the only unique part of the network of a mobile network. And this is the actual number on your SIM card. So basically, these IMSI catches can lock on to the SIM card or your SIM card and identify that it is you. What are the advantages of using this catcher technology versus other forms of intervention? You can specifically look for some device which is unique and has not been seen in the area before. So basically, if you take a prison, for instance, you may know all the numbers of the operators you may know all the numbers of the um, prison warders and you're looking for a unique number. Against fast devices such as physical measures where you've got prison walls or barriers or control points, this you can actually see that there is a new device entered into an environment. And today's catcher technology does have other use cases. Could you elaborate on the detail here for the readers of Security Matters? If you actually look at overused cases, any high security building, whether it be an embassy, a prison, an airport, or anything like that, a nuclear power plant, is somewhere that you want to protect. If you look at prisons, you know, in England and Wales in the last year, over 12,000 ANSETs were seized. 
different governments across the world look at different ways of approaching this. Some allow phones, some don't. But basically, a lot of prisons now are being used to commit serious crimes using mobile phones inside. You know, in 2015 at Wandsworth Prison, there was a plot to import machine guns um, using a contraband mobile phone. Using an IMSI catcher, you can see exactly who is in the prison, who is swapping devices and SIM cards between places, and who is actually talking to who. And you can then make a decision what to do in that situation. Lastly, Andy, could you outline the detail when it comes to physical and virtual offences and also explain how IMSI Catcher Technology deals with this? Yeah, um, physical and virtual fences. At the moment, if you go to, say, Broadmoor, which is down the road from me, you know, you've actually got physical fences where you've got a wall and then you've got um, fencing, netting, and then you may have some security device checking if anybody's broken into those fences. With an IMSI catcher technology, say that was in the middle of a desert, you could have those same protection but then sort of 10 miles away where there's nobody allowed to go, you could have a virtual fence where you make a ring of a mobile network around the property. And you can see that an intruder is close by, but not actually at the the property yet. So therefore you can identify that somebody is entering an area as soon as possible. So basically you could place it you know, 10 kilometers away, and you can see that every device coming into that area is um, a legal device belonging to somebody who should be in that area. And that's where it can help considerably. Our final guest on this edition of the podcast is Bill Hobbs. Back in June, PAC and GDX announced Bill's appointment as the global head of its sales organization. In the role of global vice president of sales for 3X Logic and Paycom, Bill adds PAC and GDX to his portfolio and is now consolidating sales leadership for these brands across all countries. Bill's career in the systems integration and physical security industry spans more than 35 years. Initially a software developer and systems engineer, Bill has actively built multiple systems integration businesses during his career and for the last two decades has led technical sales teams across a variety of industry-leading organizations. On this occasion, Bill outlines the future roadmap for security installers and system integrators, as well as the key lessons learned within the security world during the COVID-19 pandemic. First, though, Bill evaluates the concept of 360-degree security. Bill, uh, plenty of commentators are now talking about the concept of 360-degree security. What do you believe to be the meaning of that terminology and what role does electronic security have to play in this? Sure. Uh, one, one of the things we've learned over the last oh, few decades, probably in the, particularly in the most recent past, is that one of, the, one of the aspects of security in general is that we produce a great deal of data. <clears throat> we always have, we always will, but what we've missed in the past is how we correlate that data together to give us a better picture of what's going on in our environment. Uh, Where we see uh, one event happening, there may be a correlating event that we we have the data on, but we not necessarily have our attention drawn to that because we're busy looking at the first thing. So what what we talk about a 360 view or a holistic view is is having the the customer, the end user, be able to 
look at all the data that's coming at them and, and have that presented to them in a, in a consumable format. So we may have data from different systems, different sensors, different environments around their estate that we want to be sure that we are seeing uh, everything as it relates to one another. So we have to understand the risk profile. We have to understand what it is that you know, it makes them, their organization work well together. Um, and it, it involves everything, all the different systems. It could be a point of sale system. It could be a manufacturing system. It might be an access control or a, a video system, all the traditional things we think about. But we have to step outside of that box, that traditional box that we're in when we think about alarms, and look at other data points within our environment. And that's really what we're talking about there is how do we bring together all those different data points and, and present them to the customer in a consumable format that they can then easily understand what's going on in their business. From a security standpoint, this really relates to how things interact. So we might have one alarm going off that was drawing our attention uh, away from what really is happening in our environment. Uh, you think about an airport or a very large estate, for example, uh, and this, this boils all the way down to the smaller businesses as well, but you, know, you might have a fire alarm, you might have a video security event, you might have an access control event, all kind of happening at the same time that appear completely unrelated, but really it might be part of a coordinated effort. So this is what we mean when we talk about 360 security, looking at everything that happens from uh, in our environment from a, a holistic viewpoint so that we can see it all and how, understand how it relates to each other. In some respects then, Bill, do you see security systems acting as a source of big data? Oh, yes. When you think about it, really, people talk about big data, uh, and we it's been kind of a buzzword in the, in, in the uh, IT world for quite some time. But really, when you look at what data a typical access control or video or, or alarm system produces, that's really big data. We're producing huge amounts of information that it's almost impossible for a human to, to decipher and look at. We've always collected this information. But we've never done anything with it. Uh, it's set there, we, you know, you think about the amount of video record. In a security environment, the vast, vast majority of that video is never viewed. It's never viewed because we simply don't have the time. And unless there's an, a particular event that's obvious to us, we don't have the desire to go look at it. With the IT tech, technology and IP bringing all this into our environment as pure data, now we can have systems look at this. We can have uh, applications that peruse this data and look for different types of behaviors or key events that we're, we're interested in. That makes this much more usable. Uh, the, the, the challenge that we run into a little bit is that there's so much data coming at our customers that it's difficult for them to, to sort out what's important. That's why we need to build applications, and we will have built applications that help them do that. They tell us what's interesting to them in their environment. And we look for those events or those types of data points. And we bring those together, correlate them with other data points and present that to them in a way that they can easily consume and understand. Uh, what's really interesting as we get into this type of environment and this type of analysis is that oftentimes we find that what a customer told us was really important to them, what was interesting to them, uh, really is a corollary of something else that's going on. 
So oftentimes they learn as they get into the business. Many, many times I've had people tell me as we've deployed our trends product and other other data analysis products was, gee, I didn't I didn't realize that was happening. I didn't really wasn't even looking for that. Uh, maybe it's a small component. You know, it, this is kind of an odd example, but I'll give you this one because it really points out what I'm saying. In America, we you know we're very proud of our automobiles, and so we have car wash chains, and we keep the cars clean. And so the car wash chain that we worked with in particular, this one, knew about how much water it took to wash a car typically. <clears throat> so they knew what their normal consumption was. One of the data points they wanted to look at was how much water a particular location was using and consuming, and then compare that to how many actual sales they made, how many car washes they did. And that told them if, if they had, if they're consuming way more water than they expected to, um, then there's probably some fraud going that maybe, you know, maybe the, the clerk's giving away car washes or there's something else that's happening there. So it seems like a very mundane point. And this really applies all the way across our environments. You know, these really small mundane points or what are important to our customers, we pull those back. It might be the amount of consumption of some material in a particular production environment, like the car wash or our manufacturer. It might be a particular type of sale in a retail environment. It might be the traffic pattern, the footfall in a particular building that you expect to see on average, and all of a sudden it increases or decreases. So these are the things that, uh, that we are able to glean from this big data and give our customers a real view of what's going on. And speaking of those customers, Bill, would you say that end users are receiving the solutions they want and also precisely what they've paid for? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. So oftentimes the customer doesn't know what to ask for. Um, they, they know what's important to them in their business. They, they think they know what's going on. Uh, but they don't really know the, the, the nuances I'm talking about. So they don't understand where a particular small event might happen and then affect much more down the line. So uh, as we get into these things, uh, it's important that we work with our, our end users via our channel so that they understand what we can do and then they understand what they can expect from that as a result. So oftentimes they'll ask us for something. My, my, my very first question is somebody says, I want, I want to see this or that. My next question is always, well, what, then what, you know, I want to know what they expect to have happen once they gain that knowledge. Um, and, and what are they trying to solve for? What, what's the desired result that looks beyond that, that thing they told me they were interested in. Um, that's probably the most important piece of that analysis that translates into answering the question is, are they getting what they wanted or what they feel like they paid for? So helping them understand what it is they, that is possible and then also helping them understand what's happening from this big data standpoint coming into their business really will solve that issue of or that question of what are they getting and what are they, are they getting what they wanted. Now, beyond that, <clears throat> we have to know that the systems are reliable. We have to know that, um, you know, oftentimes you think about it, if you boil it down to a simple video system, for example, every, every video 
installer or dealer has has had the experience where the customers called and said, hey, I need the, the video from last night because my business was broken into. You get in and you find out that the hard drive failed last month or that camera was broken or whatever the reason was, we didn't do what the customer paid for that thing to do. We didn't record that video. So we need to have triggers and, and, and uh, indicators in the, in the uh, systems that tell us that they're actually operating and are operating properly. And so we, we build monitoring uh, software that looks at everything and tells us, yes, this is operating the way it was intended to operate. Everything's online, everything's working, so that the customer really is, is getting the result consistently that they've paid for. So I hope that answers the question. I know that's a very broad range uh, answer, but it's a pretty broad question too. And from your own perspective, what do you think the future looks like for security installers and security system integrators? <laughs> wow. You know, if you'd asked me a year ago, it would have been a totally different answer, right? Everybody, I think everybody feels the same way. Who would have ever imagined that the entire world would shut down because of a virus? Um, I think what's happened then is it's, it's changed, obviously, everything in our lives. So the, the model of... Oh, I'm going to go install a camera. I'm going to go install a, an, an intrusion system or an access control system, and then walk away from it. Really, is gone. Um, we we see a lot of movement towards how do I build value into what I'm providing that then provides me also as a as a bar or a dealer a constant source of revenue. We get into this recurring revenue model or a subscription based model, and then. And then along with that comes the fact that many of these systems are, are very much more software intense or software managed so that uh, we're not dealing with as much hardware anymore. We don't need that very high powered uh, server in the computer lab or in the closet um, because all of this information is being collected on the edge of the camera. So, it's changing the model from more of a uh, install, kind of install it and forget it, to more of a relationship-based, long-term, very sticky type of sale. So we build this act, we build this uh, system so it has remote access, so that it, it continually provides the customer with updates, and, and you get new software when it's released automatically, and all these types of things that that really are suited towards a cloud environment. Uh, is where this industry is headed. So, so if you think about it, less hardware, much more software, much more remote cloud type of environment, uh, and, and all this built on a subscription type of, of a world. You know, you think about nobody buys Microsoft Office or Microsoft Word or Excel anymore. You buy the cloud version, and that's really where this industry is headed. It's going to take a while. We're not particularly agile as, a, as an industry. So it does take us a while to make these turns. I've, I remember you know, 20 years ago when, you know, or, or less, when somebody said, you know, the, the, the era of IP cameras will destroy analog uh, cameras. There will no longer be analog cameras. Well, here we are. We're still selling analog cameras. The good thing about this model is that really if this is just plays right into the IT infrastructure and the IT uh, people who are increasingly becoming involved in security applications, uh, and they understand these models. They understand these RMR models, 
and they understand that that uh, this is the way of the future. The other benefit of this is if a, if a bar can build a recurring revenue model into their business. A typical security bar who sells access control and video has not traditionally had that same recurring revenue that an alarm dealer might have had. Um, what you're doing by building that into your business as a bar is you're building value back into that business. So someday you're going to want to retire. Someday you're going to want to sell your business. If you have that recurring book of revenue there that's, that's guaranteed, it's coming in, it's consistent, your, your attrition rate's low, then you're going to have much more value in your business when you want to make that, that final move. So there's a lot of, a lot of changes coming even still, but I think the, uh, I think the future is very bright for this, for this industry. And lastly, Bill, what do you believe are the key lessons learned to date in the security sector when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, um, I, I think for us, and from my viewpoint, primarily it's been the fact that it is, it, it's no longer theory. It's, it's possible and it's, it's proven to be practiced that you know, a building that you're securing, an estate you're securing, could all of a sudden become vacant and remain vacant for quite some time. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that um, your traditional environment where people are coming and going and there's, there's a little bit of built-in security, obviously, from having a building and a premise occupied. Uh, it's less inviting for somebody to <clears throat> to you know, do some mischief in a particular environment when there's people coming and going at least on a semi-regular basis. It's just like every other property you've ever seen that gets abandoned, that invites trouble. And so we have to look at how we secure those, those estates and how we view that security remotely and manage that remotely Understanding that at any point in time, as it has been proven, our building could become vacant overnight and, and be vacant for quite some time. So uh, I think that's really what's uh, the, the first lesson that we've learned is from this whole thing is our world could change in a moment. We always say that. We, we tell ourselves that we understand that. But I think until this until this pandemic came along, I don't think anybody really understood what that meant. And I, and I believe from a security standpoint, we've learned that we have to be ready for just about anything to happen. And we have to be able to do that remotely away from our facility. We have to be able to control the security systems. We have to be able to see what's going on, understand what's happening. And we have to be able to do that from a distance. And so... That's, to me, that's been the, the most glaring lesson that, that the world has learned. We've talked about it for some time, but, but uh, it really has hit home now with, with this pandemic. That brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Letitia Emiana and Dawn Holmes from ASIS UK, Andy Gent of Revector and Bill Hobbs of PAC and GDX for their highly valued contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsors, The Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 7th, 8th and 9th of September 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.f 
fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters, where you can view our podcast and read the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can also access our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our weekly e-news bulletins. Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag securitypod. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters. As a reminder, the Security Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. Our next podcast will be live to view on Wednesday the 13th of January 2021. We'll see you then. In the meantime, the team at Security Matters would like to wish all of our readers a Merry Christmas and a very happy and prosperous New Year.